name is Renee Clark, your host, and welcome to the Good Trouble Think Tank podcast, the show where we honor the life and legacy of Congressman John Lewis. You will meet members of the Good Trouble Think Tank, learn about the legislative process, meet local politicians, and hear from members of the community. Welcome back, Good Trouble Think Tank listeners, and welcome to my first timers. Today, we have a special guest, Peter Brooks, who identifies as a Native American, and he is the grandson of Cab Calloway. Peter creates guided meditations. He sings, drums, writes, edits, and produces video as well as storytelling. Peter comes from generations of storytellers. His grandfather, Cab Calloway, was one of the greatest of them all, and paved the way for so many to follow. Um, before we start our conversation with Peter, I wanted to introduce the Think Tank to our first time listeners. In August of 2020, I answered Congressman John Lewis's call to action to do something and to get into good and necessary trouble. The goals of the team are to find ways to resolve some of the issues we face in our community, share information about the voting process, and make a positive impact and difference in the lives of others. Boy, I am all for that. <laughs> Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for giving your time and uh, having a conversation with us today. It's well, like I said, yeah, it's so it's so parallel to, um, you know, there's so much synergy there because, you know, Either you're a person who cares for others or you don't. And if you do care for others, you know, you try to make an effort to do the best you can. And if you're available and capable of doing something, you got to do it, you know, so. Right. Like John Lewis <laughs> said, if you see something, you got to get do involved, something. do something. Yeah. Okay? You know? See something, do something. And yeah. that's what we're all about. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Now, you said you identified as Native American. Uh, what do you yeah. mean by that? Well, you know, if you asked my grandfather or any of my grandfathers, you know, they would have identified as African American. And then in the current, you know, generation within my family, you know, basically after the civil rights movement, I think a lot of us had the opportunity to choose. And so being the audience can't see me, but I'm very fair skinned. My, my racial complexion is ambiguous. You might think I'm a white person. You might think I'm a black person. You might think I'm a, an Arab person or a Hispanic person and members of my family pass or identify with all of those, as well as with um, certain other things like being Jewish um, and, and that kind of thing. And so for me then, even though we were told that this is what we should identify ourselves, I felt like we had the option to be what we wanted to be because I saw other family members doing that. And so for me, as I looked at all of the different types of people and stuff like that, it just seemed with the way that I think and the way that I act and the things I enjoy doing, I'm really more of a Native American than, 
you know, any of the others. And so that's just where I identified because, you know, those things just made sense to me. They just fit, you know? So I think it's important that everybody, you know, have the opportunity to fit in wherever they can. And so I try as a result of that journey, if you will, you know, I try not to judge people. And even though differences and, um, families and and names and stuff like that are very important to indigenous people on the whole you know they want to know who you are who your parents were where you came from um i have found i don't think those differences are very important when people say to me you know um that they are one tribe or another or of one race or another. I try to diminish those differences as much as possible um, in, in the things I do and the way I think and stuff. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing. I just, you know, if you can, that's only to help you really that I tell you that I identify as native American. It's only to help you to understand how to approach me and, and what I'm about. So <laughs> Okay, so I'd like the listeners now I'm kind of dating myself. Um, I remember seeing Cab Calloway as a as a younger person. And I'm 50 plus, but some of us who might be listening may not have ever heard of Cab Calloway. Can you tell me, you tell our listeners who he was, what was his claim to fame and how did he impact the African American entertainment and culture. Wow. Okay, great. First, first of all, I should probably tell your listeners that although um, you cannot see Renee, for her to say she is 50 plus is just <laughs> jaw dropping. I mean, you have to see this person because you will not believe how young she looks. But it's true. And I, I recommend if you're listening to this, that you do check out the think tank and get an opportunity to work with Renee because we are making history. And that's something that my grandfather did. So, and it's something I got to witness. So it's something I think, I hope I know a little bit about. Um, but Cab Calloway was um, the first, you know, African-American or person of color to sell a million records from a single song. He, um, which was Minnie the Moocher in 1929. He, left Baltimore in 1927 when he fathered my mother. And in two years after leaving Baltimore, he was the featured attraction replacing Duke Ellington at the Cotton Club, which in the 1930s was the late 20s, the number one entertainment venue probably in the world, arguably, you know, um, but at least in the United States. And so when he took that stage, it was said that Duke Ellington was just going on vacation. You know, he was just going to go on tour for a little while. But even though the Cotton Club was associated with Duke Ellington, from the time Cab Calloway took that stage, he pretty much owned it and, and ran that club. This is amazing. For about five years, um, to have a club and to be you know, the only attraction or the feature attraction of five years is really kind of amazing. Um, and it speaks to, you know, his family, his origin and things like that. He uh, 
also is associated with the early animation technique of rotoscoping. He's also considered the first African-American to have his own syndicated radio show by a national broadcast. In 1939, he had a show called Quizzical. He and Duke Ellington, irrespective, and Louis Armstrong, really did a lot to help integrate America and bring African-American culture into the homes of people that would never have associated with it. Um, he also is associated with the Zoot Suit, several dance styles, including like Michael Jackson's The Moonwalk, but um, The Buzz, The Jitterbug, um, improvisational jazz dancing. He also is really the first person who begins to demonstrate music as this sort of trance-like experience. People listen to Cab Calloway and they start losing control. And it's something they don't do really with Duke Ellington or Louis Armstrong or even, you know, Nat King Cole or some of those guys. There's this idea of like um, surrendering to the music, which later became a big deal in rock and roll with like Woodstock and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he, you know, is is also known for improvised melodies. He's the first singer to really popularize improvisation of melodies. He's the one of the first singers to really popularize this idea of creating a different language that only people within the group can understand um, and appreciate. Um, and whenever you have pretty much a, a, a male performer specifically who uses a lot of call and response, is very charismatic, kind of a hypersexual energy, um, and, and, and this uh, idea of, you know, what I guess you would call it hypermasculinity, the ability to dance and to sing and to be handsome and, and viral and all that kind of stuff. Um, that, you know, which you associate with people like Mick Jagger and perhaps Marvin Gaye and certainly Bob Marley, you know, that kind of starts with Cab Calloway. This idea of counterculture in 1930, he had a song that was a hit called Reefer Man. So he was always, you know, at the cutting edge kind of. Um, and so when you have those kinds of performers, it really kind of starts with Cab Calloway. And so that's something of his significance. <laughs> wow, yes, exciting. So are you, do you have some of the his video clippings that you, you know, that you view often? I mean, I probably yes. could go to YouTube and take a look at some of the his um, his acts or his performances. Well, I give talks, um, you know, uh, throughout the country whenever I can explaining this, but not just this, but the process behind it, you know, how did people like Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington and W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey and Zora Neale Hurston and all the rest, how did they engineer this renaissance? And so I talk about how to do that and how, you know, you can have that sort of transformational experience as well. But then also, you know, trying to put him in context, you know, even though you know, Cab Calloway in uh, February 7th, 1942, cut a single called I Want to Rock. And this is really the first time that you associate rock with something other than an inanimate object made up of earth. It's, um, you know, it's one of the first times. It, it, and this, the song itself is about the music itself. And this song, I Want to Rock, is 12 years before the song Rock Around the Clock, which is considered the first rock and roll song. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, 
this is one of his innovations. You know, we, in, in, in 1939, or yeah, I think it was 39, Cab Calloway introduces the term boogie into the oh, okay. king's language or the queen's language, you know, okay. boogie. <laughs> boogie. Um, yeah, yeah he, he cuts a song with, um, uh, I think it was Glenn Miller, I forget, whichever the one was who died in World War I, uh, one of the great band leaders, I can't remember his name offhand, but it was called Boogit. Book it. And then um, a year after that, in 41, the Andrews sisters release a song called Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company C. With Company C. Okay. Okay. I don't remember. I remember that song. But pretty much from that time on, any song that has the word boogie in it is a hit. We should think about him. He. Yeah. You know, and and that's. (laughs) Yeah. So. We and and really he's he was the first to admit that he didn't really make all these words up. He was just the one who wrote them down. And so there's a lesson oh. to be learned there. You know what I mean? He mm-hmm. is one of the first African Americans to publish a dictionary, you know, in 1937 with the Hepsters dictionary. So yeah, there's there's a lesson in that as well. So um I, you know, I I try to convey these things to try to help young people to understand the heritage and all that. And there's kind of a story behind that whole that whole thing, how that started. But but yeah, it's uh, there's a lot there. And it was not until, you know, I got into my 50s or something that I really came to realize it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there's a certain urgency and stuff about getting. And how, how old did your grandfather live? How old was it when he passed? He died in 1994. And he was born in 1907, so he was about 84 years old. Okay, 86 years old. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, and he, you know, performed uh, probably you know 68 years. He was on stage uh, mm-hmm. as a professional singer, and he has very few scandals. Um, you know, the one major one being Janet Dubois, the the uh, who played uh, Winona in Good Times. Mm-hmm probably my aunt you know it depends on what family member you talk to but yeah okay okay um because you know i and and again this is this is the difference between me and like even other people within my family you know when i look at janet dubois and i look at my mom and her sisters yeah you can't tell them apart i mean she just she just fits right in so that's all the evidence i need really you know what i mean that's my aunt you know what i mean and but other people need you know blood quantum and dna and all i don't i don't really need the harlem renaissance i watched your youtube video and it was so powerful anyone listening from a college or university or high school or even middle school you know um you need to check this out. I mean, there are um, there's there is a lot there for people to get come from, especially coming off of these disasters um, and this uh, economic insecurity, you know, that we're experiencing now. And you know, because the Harlem Renaissance really, it was a, a an age where things like today were not that good for people. You know, we were paid much less than um, whites. And I mean, my grandfather, despite being this happy-go-lucky person and stuff like that. Late in his age, he was very, very bitter because so much had been stolen from him, you know, Mm -hmm. and he had to work to keep up, you know, his lifestyle. He Mm -hmm. could not retire. There was just no, there wasn't an option for him to do that. Um, So, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was really, um, 
you mm. know, it was a challenging time and yet the people stayed together and they became so important and they became like the most important people of the century. And a lot of that has to do with their commitment to each other, you know, their commitment to supporting each other and stuff. There's a really interesting story about Cab's sister, Blanche Calloway. You know, mm -hmm. she really started in the industry before him. It was Blanche who introduced Cab to her friend, Louis Armstrong, who taught Cab, you know, as a mentor, taught him everything he knew, got him his first job as a singer. So it was always this story of people working together and looking out for each other and caring about each other and as opposed to, you know, competing with each other or comparing each other to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, Cab and Duke, there was, I won't deny an internal rivalry between them, but if you didn't know it, you wouldn't know it because no. they all really, yeah, they loved they each other. They, okay. they traded musicians. They played mm -hmm. cards together. You know, they, you know what I mean? There was a competition, sure. But, um, but yeah, they, they weren't going to let that stand in the way of doing what they felt was best for the race overall. And that is being like public about it. Like you saw with, uh, Big Biggie and Tupac, you know, that was something Duke and Cab or Louis Armstrong and anyone they were not going to do. They were not going to do even when Cab got in a tremendous fight, terrible fight with Dizzy Gillespie. Um, you know, they they later made up. They were best of friends. They spent his birthday together. He would call Cab wherever he was and play happy birthday to him and mm -hmm. If, oh, if Cab wow. ever needed him, he would show up. Yeah. And and they had a knife fight backstage. Oh, my goodness. Wow. You want to hear that story? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Y'all can hear that story, but you got to come to the meetings and ask. And I'll tell the story of Cab Calloway and Dizzy Gillespie and the knife fight. Yeah, they've got to come to the Good Trouble Think Tank meeting to hear That's your story. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I, I want people to have me come and speak and tell you the whole story of how this group of people went from being slaves to being world-class artists and creators and thinkers um, and even business people and religious leaders as well Mm -hmm. world class in just uh, 50 years okay. if that you know what i mean and 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 still maintaining second class citizenship and yet extending beyond what is contemporary into what is cutting edge and okay. and they did that and it is a phenomenal story of um you know resilience and hope and at the center of it really is marcus garvey now, Peter, you, in your bio, when you say that your creative process begins with a recognition that we are on occupied land, yes. knowing that makes you want to understand what happened, why, and what was lost in the occupation. And your focus is on what is, was lost and gathering those things together and making them real again. Yes. What does yes. that mean? To, can you share what that means to our listeners? Absolutely. Sure. Great, great question. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, this land that I am sitting on now was the land of the Piscataway Tayac. Um, the Piscataway Tayac held a loose, you know, confederation of Native Americans that would extend from um, 
way down in Virginia along the coast, all the way up through Maryland into the Hagerstown, Frederick, you know, Cecil County area. The, the Tyak was respected throughout all that land. And even though, you know, it wasn't a direct control thing like you have now with the governor and the state of Maryland, it was still, it was sort of a, a um, as I can see it, a, uh, a, 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 a law, the great law of peace, you know what I mean, that extended from, from that area. And so that was the, the Tyak's authority range. Um, this land was just taken by the Europeans, which was how we all got here. And it was never ceded by the Tyak. There was never an agreement or anything like that. Um, it, it, it was just taken. So I think that's a very painful thing. I think it's a terrible injustice. You know, as we're speaking, the same thing is happening to the people in Ukraine. Um, and so if it upsets the world about what happens to the Ukrainians, the world should be upset about what happened to the Native Americans. So we all acknowledge that that was the wrong thing. So how are we going to deal with that? Well, my theory is we go back to the time before this wound was created. You know, let's let's look really seriously at Native American culture and thought and civilization and spirituality. See what we can extract from that that's relevant today. And in that way, we keep that tradition alive because there are a lot of ways in which that tradition is really useful to our people today. For instance, one of the things I do in, in that healing type of thing, in that kind of return to innocence, is I recite what uh, is called in Seneca the Gyanyak, or the words before all else. Now, this comes from the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois tribe. So it's not Piscataway per se, but um, the words before all else or the Thanksgiving address is a common type of Native American greeting or salutation or way to begin an event or business transaction or to begin the day or anything like that. Um, the Gyanyak would be recited several times probably during the day. And it's very, very powerful. In the Gyanyak, you just stop and give thanks for all the little things that have made you be alive here today. The fish and the water and the stars and the moon. And so it's really, really beautiful. And it's sort of like calling time out from Western civilization and going back in time and allowing yourself to experience that kind of tranquility again so that you can deal with the world today. So yeah, that's that's what I think we we need to do. And 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 then allowing that to infuse us in the way we treat each other, the way we treat the earth, the way we, you know, live our lives, because we're we're adopting this sort of habit, you know what I mean? Um so yeah, I think that's that's important. I mean, you know, people can say, you know, whatever they want about uh Native Americans that they're not any different from any other human beings. And it's true, you know, Native Americans do have a history of genocide, you know, even the Haudenosaunee people who gave us the great law of peace, you know, uh, they wiped out the Hurons. And part of that was because the Hurons had introduced disease, diseases that the Haudenosaunee had never seen before. And that was because the Hurons were really 
aggressive or open toward working with the whites. So, you know, there there is some history for this, but nevertheless, it would, I think, by today's terms, be considered a genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, all civilization, all races of people have this kind of background where we allow hatred and anger and fear to dominate our thinking. But they also have a, a tradition that is the opposite of that. And so I'm not saying, you know, for people to adopt this thing all in or whatever, you know, all I'm saying is this is something that can be useful to you, just like aspirin or a cough drop or a glass of water, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. Is there like a tribal song or thing that you chant um, mm-hmm. in honor of your ancestors? Is it, can you, can you yes. share that with us? Can you oh my quick, gosh. Quick, like 10 seconds. Sure, okay. sure. This, this is the AIM song. This is the song of the American Indian movement. It was brought to us by the, uh, by the Cheyenne tribe. We just like in Eastern meditation, how they talk about control your breathing, you know, monitor your breathing. That's all kind of we're doing. We're making a sound with our breathing that we're controlling and monitoring it. And by somehow, I think, I don't know the neuroscience exactly, but by having the conscious brain communicate and control the unconscious brain, it sort of causes us to go into this sort of trance-like state. And so the trance-like state that we go into when singing a song like that or singing a song in general, when you're really you know, singing, um, is the same feeling as, as self-hypnosis meditation. It's pretty much the same thing. And so what I do in, in my classes, especially the class to veterans, because that song, you know, is really a veteran song. It's a song for warriors. Um, and so what I do is try to teach veterans how they can turn that on and turn that off, how they can, you know, go into this trance-like state and maintain consciousness, give themselves instructions like in self-hypnosis or in meditation, and then come out of it and still, you know, have those instructions ingrained inside of them. And, you know, the instructions are always something positive and uplifting and, right. and yeah, affirming. <laughs> <laughs> Your grandparents established civil rights organizations or they were part yes. of civil rights organizations. So, oh boy, yeah, this is a heck of a story. Cab Calloway's grandfather was Andrew Reed, Cab and Blanche, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, not enough credit is given to Blanche. And, and the reason I wanted to mention her was because of her cooperative relationship with Josephine Baker. So, but, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, you know, uplift her name, you know, whenever we can. So after the Civil War, the state of Maryland was not eligible for reconstruction grants or um, assistance from the federal government because Maryland was a part of the Union, which as we know, since Maryland is basically where the first 
conflict took place um, was not really, you know, it was a contested state. It was not really part of the union. So as a result, a group of African-American men took it upon themselves to create what became the United Mutual Brotherhood of Liberty. And in order to become a member of the United Mutual Brotherhood of Liberty, you had to have done something. And the organization was a hybrid of the Black Panthers and the NAACP in that they would do both street theater and covert action, as well as court type of litigation and mm -hmm. you know overt action. Cab Calloway's grandfather, Andrew Reed, became a member of the Brotherhood because he testified against his employer that when African-American women purchased first-class tickets after you know, the time of separate but equal, they were supposed to be given first-class accommodations that were separate from the white people but equal to the white people. And he testified in court that his employer instead told them they were to go down below with the animals. Yeah, even though they had purchased first-class tickets, okay. they were to go with the storage, with the, with the cargo. It was on a boat, yeah, a boat. a boat leaving from Maryland to Virginia, yeah. And so that's how Andrew Reed was admitted into, because he had done that. He put his life on the line. He uh, stood up for the things he believed in. And boy, I tell you, looking back, I don't know, much about his life beyond that, except for I was in the historical society trying to track him down. And it seemed like every time there was any sort of census or mention of him, he was living someplace else. I think he was on the limb from that point on. Mm -hmm. But um, but guys like Ashby Hawkins, who is another great uh, person in Baltimore history, who was the attorney for the United Mutual Brotherhood. And he was the first one to buy a house on Druid Hill Avenue, which integrated that whole part of Baltimore. Um, and so, yeah, these this was a really powerful organization. They they brought about the first teachers. Initially, when, when um, Blacks had said, well, we should have schools, they said, yeah, well, you can have schools. Yeah, we got to give you schools. But we don't have any teachers that'll teach your students, so you can't have schools. So there was the United Mutual Brotherhood of Liberty that organized getting teachers certified and mm -hmm. the founding then of Coppin Normal School, you know, and um, and so that some of the first educators, some of the first schools and stuff came out of the United Mutual Brotherhood. Um, they also were, were very strong businessmen in insurance. They had a way of moving the money around, given a person's life and life expectancy and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know, they had like set plans and stuff of how they were going to execute the money in the next step so that, you know, everyone would benefit. Um, they weren't really, you know, thinking as much about their families per se in that regard. It was more like for the brotherhood. Um, Dennis Halpin wrote a book from the uh, from Virginia Tech called um, the United Mutual Brotherhood of Liberty. He would be a great person. Actually, I should get him on the on in the think, think tank too. Um, and you know, yeah, he can give you more detail on it. But yeah, it's it's an amazing story. And so their mother, uh, uh, Martha Reed had them in the church. She was the organist in the Presbyterian church. So both Blanche and Cab grew up 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that and and you can hear that in Cab's music. Cab then sort of rejects the church life. Blanche stays with uh, God. Um, and I can't say, you know, Cab turns his back on her, but he became seduced by the wonders of the world. Now, Cab is highly influenced by the Arabers, the, mm-hmm. the African-American fruit salesmen that would go through the neighborhoods in Baltimore. And these guys were the first ones to really deploy improvised melodies. Um, they would go through the neighborhoods yelling, watermelons, peaches and corn. You know, and so he picked up on that. That's where his thing of improvised melody came in. And if you notice, you know, improvised melody is exactly what people do in hip hop, you know? And so um, it all really started with the with the A-Rabbers in, in downtown Baltimore. So did uh, your grandfather live his final years in Baltimore, Maryland? So once he finishes... Um career in new york did he come back yes. to baltimore okay he, he never came back to Baltimore. he came back to baltimore to perform several times obviously he got okay. the key to the city and all that kind of thing but he okay. never came back to baltimore to live he just worked he worked he never stopped working and when he wasn't working he was <laughs> at the track or um or he was, you know, involved with some activity or, or movie or, or something. He's a guy who wore a zoot suit and usually he would change two or three times a show. So just for him to do a thing at night is like so complicated, different shoes and hats and feathers and batons. And, you know, it's a whole litany of stuff. Plus you've got, you know, a band of 18 or nine different instruments. Each instrument has their own charts. The charts are all, you know, five and six pages. Some of them, each song has five or six pages. So everybody's got this huge notebook and they're flipping back and forth and all. And then the other thing, which is really amazing. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, I I don't think many people can appreciate if you've got 18, you know, or, or just four trumpets blowing behind you. Mm-hmm. you know and saxophones and stuff you've got to have a powerful voice yeah. you can't whisper or talk you know uh, mm-hmm. because there's so much noise around you the drums are on stage you know and all that stuff and so um you know and the microphones back then you know we were just getting started so he really had a a had a, an uncanny um courage you know and sort of booming uh, singing style about him and mm-hmm. people who had that like um, Ella Fitzgerald, you know, could really belt it out um, as opposed to like Louis Armstrong, who you had to bring the music down. You know, he was not going to overwhelm you with his diaphragm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and same thing with Nat King Cole, you know, you kind of had to bring the music down. Um, but people like Cab and Billy Eckstein and those guys, they could really, you know, you had to do diaphragm breathing and there was no auto tune or anything like that, Jack. <laughs> you had to, you know, and you had to nail it because everybody was watching and more so, you know, your musicians were watching. And there was always this competition of like, man, you know, this band is BS. I'm going to join this band. 
Okay. I'm gonna be a part of that. You know what I mean? I'm done with this guy. You know what I mean? He gets on my nerves or whatever. Guys had to trade and draft and find talent to make a team. And that was a really big challenge that musicians today don't really, I mean, you know, they still do, but it's not the same. Are there any historical museums or places that, that house pictures and videos of your grandfather? You know, we don't have that. You know, Louis Armstrong has a really nice museum in New York. Um, I don't think Duke Ellington has a museum. I know he has the high school in Washington. I don't think Dizzy Gillespie has a museum. Obviously, Elvis Presley has a museum, and that's a big, big deal. Um, and, and, you know, that's one of the things I talk about in, uh, you know, the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, uh, actually, that this one is the Fela Kuti Cab Calloway one, is the fact that, you know, Elvis Presley's grandson took his own life. And he took his life in a time when I was fighting to keep my grandfather's house up. Mm-hmm. And his grandfather, Elvis Presley, his house is the most visited house in America. I mean, people, more people would go there than the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet my grandfather's house is rubble. But yeah, it's Elvis Presley's grandson who's not here, but I am. That's so strange. Mm-hmm. You know, that shows you that it's not all about the things that you can touch and 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 feel and see, you know, it's also, there's some other element to it and it's the spiritual element. And so for me, the only thing I could say looking at that, and, and if I could have talked to Benjamin before he took his life, it would be, you know, that you can't compare yourself to your grandfather. You know, he's gone, first of all, and you're here. So you're all we've got. You're all he's got. Don't mm-hmm. let him down. You know what I mean? Right. Um, continue to promote him, promote his heritage. What did your grandfather stand for? What did Elvis stand for? You know what I mean? And whatever that is, pick up the ball and run it with it. You know, we've all got to kind of, and I think all of us, especially as African-Americans, have to look back at our heritage and what did these people stand for? Pick mm-hmm. up the ball and run it, especially the ones whose heritage and, and lives you really, really respect. Um, and that gives us a purpose, you know, I gotta, I have to do this because I'm not going to let down my mom. She was um, about to go to college when suddenly um, her father calls her and says, hey, can you come out to California with us? I got a movie out there and we really need you to look after your sister, Chris. And so, boom, she's out there living next to Humphrey Bogart and going to Lena Horne's house and stuff like that. And uh, she's all mixed up in the Hollywood thing. And it completely, you know, changed her life. And, um, you know, she tells the stories like that and how she came back to, to New York and became an educator. And she was, you know, she's a real powerful force. Um, she became a principal. Her school was voted the best school in, in the state of Virginia uh, at the time that she was there. Um, she founded the, or, or saved really, the UB Blake Center in downtown Baltimore. Um, and also erected the Ernest Burke statue here in Havre de Grace, which was, uh, you know, for a Negro League player. And this was the first African-American acknowledgement or anything, you know, a, a piece of art or something like that ever in Hartford County. And that was 2021 or, you know, 2020 that she got that up. So, yeah, she's uh, she's very powerful. And I finally convinced her to, to try to you know, capture her memoirs and stuff. And so I'm so glad you did. And, and how old is your mom? 95. 
the Montgomery Park um, Parks and Recreation is building a playground over the graves of our Black ancestors. Um, and it's just, it just seems like a very insensitive and disrespectful thing to do because, you know, and especially, you know, for Native people, because, you know, we feel that your bones are a part of the earth, you know, and the earth is your mother. And Wovoka said this best. He said, you asked me to, to, to cut wheat and, and, you know, grow crops. Would I cut my mother's hair while she's in her grave? You want me to dig in the ground and pull up minerals and gold and be rich like white men. Would I dig through my mother's body in her grave, you know, and take bones from her and stuff? So, you know, um, it's so rare that we find an African-American cemetery like this. And this cemetery, and it, it may especially be sensitive for my family because it's turning out that this was a location where they would breed slaves. And I think my family, because this is kind of maybe, I don't know for a fact, but where, you know, my grandfather's hypersexuality comes from is that we may have been breeders um, because they would select slaves, because the babies were very valuable um, and they were mm -hmm. worth a lot and you didn't have to pay anything to, you know, it just was the woman's nine months. So, um, yeah, so this was, so there were a lot of, um, children found there and women and stuff like that. Um, and so it's a very, very important part of our history and story that needs to be told. Not to, you know, make people feel guilty or try to take advantage or whatever. It's just so that we don't repeat this again. We see what we're capable of doing and we just don't want to continue. You know, that's the bottom line. So, um, you know, it's always, uh, I'm always upset when when today's whites take it personally. I mean, it's hard. We have very raw emotions, but at the end of the day, we understand it was not you. You were not the one who did that. But, you know, we don't want to see anyone do it again. Mm -hmm. And please join us in that struggle, exactly. irrespective of how you feel or, you know, whatever. Um, just that's all. That's really the bottom line. Don't take it personally. Let's do something about it together. It's the Macedonia Baptist Church. Yeah. Um, in, uh, let's see, Montgomery County. I don't know the exact location because I'm just finding out about this, but um, it's called Macedonia's Ch Church to Moses African Cemetery mm -hmm. is where it is. So, okay. yeah. So, and so Bethesda, Bethesda is African Bethesda. Cemetery Coalition. Okay, so basically what you've heard is that it's proposed or is it a done deal? Is it a done deal? I think they've done I think they've done excavation. Um I think they're <gasps> they're moving, yeah. Because she she mentioned that she saw people carrying bones out. So okay, yeah. this is too late. I guess it's too late to do anything about it. It it may be, but at least we should find out what's going on. And again, if it's too late this time, let people know this is important to us, you know, mm -hmm. don't do this. So it is still important, even if it's too late for this, it's important for your listeners that your voice be heard. 
Sure. That's if you Absolutely. ever go into a neighborhood where all the things are nice and, you know, uh, the streets are paved and there's no potholes and, you know, the, the police come and all that stuff. It's because those people are involved in the politics, you know, and, mm. and that's why they get stuff done. Yeah, you know that when when a neighborhood has very politically active people politicians are afraid whether they vote or not just the fact that they're organized they have a reputation they can get petitions done they can all show up at city hall you know together these things are very very powerful in a democracy and these are the levers that we as african american people native american people we need to pull these levers that's why i am so involved with the think tank group, you know, the John Lewis think tank group, because this is the lever we have to pull. So, well, one of the things that I'm working on is, you know, I'm really concerned about these African-American museums in Maryland. I'm involved with the Henrietta Lacks. I'm also involved with the Hubert Simmons Museum of Negro League Baseball, um, the Great Blacks in Wax even the Benjamin Banneker Museum, the Harriet Tubman Museum, the Sankofa Museum. I am looking to form an alliance for all of these museums, not only to support each other, but to go to Annapolis and before the county councils and before the Department of Education and advocate for these museums. You know what I mean? I think the the museums, at, at, especially on Black History Month, should go to every county council meeting that they can around that time just to share with the citizens what's there for them. And so that's something that I'm really working on. And it's interesting. I'm, I was thinking of this idea that if we, you know, formed a, a DOA, you know, a, a, a decentralized, uh, you know, organization mm-hmm. that could that could bring all the people from around the world who are interested in this as a community, you know, and that is the relationship between culture and mental health, culture and crime. How can culture help educate our people? Um, You know, if the museums can create NFTs and perhaps sell them on the DOA, this could fund the alliance rather than having to go and ask for money and stuff like that. And so that way we're doing two things. If we can do this, we're both creating memorabilia and and making black history important because this is, you know, memorabilia, but also, you know, we're, um, we're doing this in a way that the people who purchase it are making an investment. So if I were to, um, you know, purchase a photograph of this cemetery that we talked about, you know, it could be valuable long term because it's an NFT and, uh, you know, it's a single copy and stuff like that. And it was purchased through these means that supported all of the museums, you know, throughout Maryland. Every time they have an event, there should be the four or five of us from the Alliance who show up no matter what, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because these events, you know, we, we uh, Henrietta Lacks just had a, a, a a black history event and no one knew about it. You know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. and they're all having crab feasts and other fundraisers and stuff, and they need to sell tickets. Mm -hmm. So we should support each other in that regard. It shouldn't be so difficult. Yeah. And you know, the other thing is we lose students. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're in a, in a competitive situation with the university of Delaware or the university of Virginia, you know, and these places have nice museums and cultural places and places to hang out, 
they're not going to come to Maryland schools. So it's really cultural institutions feed, you know, the institutions as well. So it's, they're very, very important. They bring tourists, they create news, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're really important. They preserve history and there's sort of a, um, a springboard for people, you know, wondering what to do with their life or, or facing, okay. you know, challenges or what have you. Yeah. So very important. How do we get in touch with you? What is, what is your website? Um, I am a PB, uh, P, as in Peter Brooks, pbspeaks.com. Thank you again for your time today. And so until the next time, um, feel free to visit our website. You can contact us or send us an email. Our website is getintogoodtrouble.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.